Our reading for today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Listen now to the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any change against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is intending for us, oh, who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, it's been a while, but it's just like riding a bike, right? All right. Uh, for those of you who are new to our service, we are just about done with a year-long series of sermons on the New City Catechism. Uh, there are just three more questions and answers left, and so by way of review, as we've been doing, or I know we've kind of taking the month of August off from this, but uh, I want to review, starting with question 36. So if I get question 36 up there. All right, so uh, I know you have been lazy recently and not memorizing. So uh, let's at least uh, recite them together. Question 36, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? That he is God, the Holy Eternal, the Father, the Son. 37, how does the Holy Spirit help us? Thirty-eight. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. Forty-one. What is the Lord's prayer? Forty-two. How is the word of God to be read and heard? Forty-three. What are the sacraments or ordinances? <laughs> what is baptism? Baptism is the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Question 46, what is the Lord's Supper? Question 48, what is the church? And today's question is number 49, 
Where is Christ now? And the answer, the long answer, is Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. But the answer that we're going to memorize together is Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this day that you have made, a day that we can gather together in your name to worship, to sing praises, to hear your word, to pray, to share in a common table. And so, God, now in the hearing of your word, would you breathe your spirit into these words so that they are not just mere words, but of your spirit and let your word do its work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is Christ now? The Apostles' Creed tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. Maybe you heard this little joke when you were in Sunday school. Why can God only use his left hand? Answer, because Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. Jesus sitteth on the right hand of the Father. Of course, sitting on the right hand or by the right hand of the Father is a metaphor. What does it mean and describe, though, to talk about Christ being next to the Father? According to our reading today in verse 34, there are three related aspects to where Christ is now. Verse 34, there are three pieces of this that I want us to kind of consider together. He is the one who died, more than that, Paul says, who was raised, that is, he ascended into heaven, who is at the right hand of God, what we call the session, sitting down, and who indeed is interceding for us, or intercession. So I want us to think about these words, ascension, session, and intercession. First, ascension. The ascension of Christ is not something that I've emphasized over the years, uh, but I discovered this week that in one of our Reformed catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechisms, there are more questions and answers devoted to the topic of Christ's ascension than there are questions and answers related to his resurrection. So, you know, that tells us that this is very important and we ought to give it at least some attention. To affirm that Jesus was raised or ascended into heaven is to say, first of all, that he is no longer here, that he is no longer on earth in bodily form. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in his resurrected body, a spiritual and resurrected body, but a body. Not just, you know, some ghost-like apparition. We claim the full humanity of Christ in his incarnation, but in the resurrection also we must affirm in his new resurrected body that he retains his humanity. This, of course, was a scandal for the Greeks. They could not imagine such a thing. Their entire philosophy sought to escape from the limitations, the decay the mortality of the human body. But Christianity claims 
that the body is created good by God. It has fallen from its original goodness, but in our redemption, the whole human being, all of our humanity, including the body, shall be resurrected. We profess in the resurrection of the body and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus was holy and fully divine, equal with God. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus in his new body, in his full divinity and his full humanity, is returning to God. Something has changed. It means that some aspect of Christ's incarnation, his humanity, is now involved in the eternal triune God. The infinite has somehow embraced the finite. John Calvin said, this is good news for us. Since Jesus entered heaven in our flesh, as if in our name, it follows, as the apostle says, that in a sense, we already sit with God in heavenly places in him. Ephesians 2.6 and Colossians 3.1 tells us that we have been raised up with Jesus and are seated with him already. We are in some embryonic way, not yet fully realized, exalted, and sitting with the Father. In some limited sense, we already share in his reign. All of this, of course, is a language of metaphor. George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, in their book, Metaphors We Live By, argue that metaphors underlie the way we speak and think and understand the world. Metaphors, they argue, are not just things that only poets use, but that they are fundamental to our understanding of the way the world works and the way we talk about it. They argue that the large-scale metaphors are usually spatial. For example, the word up. The language of up is associated with happiness, with consciousness, being in control, with quality, status, virtue, and approval. We say things like, I feel uplifted, as opposed to feeling down. We say, wake up, but that she dropped off to sleep. We say, I'm on top of the situation, rather than I'm buried under my work. The stock market is rising. I mean, we could just as easily have drawn our graphs reverse. There's no particular reason other than that we associate up with good. We talk about climbing the ladder or attaining a lofty position. We look for people who are upstanding, high-minded, rather than underhanded, and on and on. So when we talk about Jesus as having ascended, you know, this is not to talk about a kind of a literal going up. I know that, of course, in ancient cosmology, they thought of heaven being up, hell being down, the earth beneath, and so, of course, they have to think up. Uh, We understand that there is no sort of absolute up and down in the way we understand the world. But this metaphor still continues to resonate. It continues to hold meaning for us. To talk about up is to think about something that is good, something that is very positive. 
a 17th century minister, said that the ascension of Jesus was his favorite mystery among the mysteries of Jesus' life because it's the only one in which you, it made you think how nice it was for Jesus instead of thinking about how nice it is for us. The incarnation was great joy for us, but not for Jesus in that cold stable. The passion and crucifixion brings us tears of gratitude, but it was anguish and misery for Jesus. But in the ascension, Jesus is going back home to the joy of being with the Father. So after the horrors of the crucifixion and the mystery of the resurrection, there is the joy of the ascension. It is an invitation for us then to join in that joy. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that we should look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. In other words, he didn't simply return to heaven back to where he came from. This language of he ascended tells us, you know, it's, it's like royalty. When, when they uh, become king, when they're coronated, they ascend to the throne. Uh, if you've seen coronations, it's physically, literally in an elevated place. The throne is elevated so that the kings and, you know, whoever's coronated, they, they ascend to that space. They, they go up symbolically, but also literally they, they actually go up to a higher place to... to um, to tell us that they are in a higher position. They are above others. And so Jesus is now returning to the Father, but, but he's ascending to the Father, to his rightful place, to exaltation and to glory. And so because he has now ascended in bodily form, it means that he cannot be here with us physically. That does not mean, however that Christ is no longer present with us in any meaningful way. Um, one of the iconic movies of my uh, teenage years uh, was the movie E.T., The Extraterrestrial, from uh, 1982, directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. I know some of you younger folks may not remember that movie. Um, briefly, the, the story's about this uh, ugly uh, alien uh, who comes to earth and gets stranded, gets left behind and so spends the whole movie trying to phone home. That's, that's the, that's the storyline. The story, you know, it's about think about this. The extraterrestrial E.T., he comes from the heavens. No one knows where he's from exactly. He's gentle. He's powerful. Children love him. But adults are suspicious of him and the government the powers that be are threatened by him. He performs healings and works of wonder. He is captured by the government and he dies in the hands of the powers, the legitimate ruling powers. Then miraculously, he is resurrected and he ascends into the heavens as his earthly friends look up into the sky. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
a number of people have pointed out the, the plot parallels to the story of Jesus. Now, you know, Spielberg's not a Christian, obviously, so I don't know that he intended it that way, but I thought, yeah, there is a sort of parallel in the, in the story. Now, remember, if you saw the movie, or you remember, in the very closing scene, you know, E.T. is hugging his friends and saying goodbye, and Elliot, who's his best friend, he comes to him, and remember, he takes that, that glowing finger, and he touches him on the forehead, right? And he says, I'll be right here. Right? He, he's got to go back to his home, but he tells him with that little glowing finger, I'll be right here, pointing to his brain. E.T. leaves physically, but he tells his friends, I will be present with you, suggesting as you remember me and as you remember me in your community. Now, again, I I doubt that's what Spielberg had in mind, but this is not a bad interpretation of what Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. I don't want to push that too far. But... But I think there is something about when we gather together in his name, as we gather together in community, as we work and witness together for his kingdom, as we share in the communion table, he is in some way present with us. That's true. But there's far more than that for us. It's not just our memories. Jesus said that it is to our advantage that he go away to the Father because then he will send us the Holy Spirit. In fact, that he cannot send us the Holy Spirit until he returns to the Father. Remember, Jesus in his humanity cannot be in two places at once. Just like us, he's limited in his humanity by space and time. But now because we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the very mind of Christ is everywhere and every when. He is with us. Not just as we think about it or somehow, you know, whatever we can bring to memory, but in a real, real way. Spiritually, but in a real way, the Spirit of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is present with us. And the Spirit aids us to know Christ and to know that he has ascended as well as in our hearts. So it tells us that even though Jesus is no longer with us bodily, there is joy because his ascension makes possible for us to experience and to have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and working in the world. That's the ascension. Secondly, the session. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I think there are two really important aspects of this. First is that the fact that Jesus is sitting down tells us that his work is finished once and for all. The letter to the Hebrews makes this very clear. In chapter 1, it says this. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. That is, he did his work on the cross, it is finished, and now he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 10 later then repeats this claim and makes it even more clear. And where it says, every priest stands daily at his service, referring to temple worship, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins, right? Priests were constantly offering sacrifices, daily offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. It's done. The pattern of the ancient temple worship and the work of the priests in Israel is likened to, it's a, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of what Christ would do. You know, the Jewish temple supposedly didn't have any chairs because the priests could never sit down because their work was never done. It was a constant, constant sacrifice of animals for the forgiveness of sins. Their work was never finished. Every single day they had to make sacrifice. But Jesus on the cross was the one single necessary and sufficient sacrifice. And he's able to say, it is done. It is finished. Our salvation is complete and secure. And therefore, Jesus is able to sit down. Secondly, to say that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father means that Jesus is now at the highest position of authority. Sitting down at, at the right hand, you know, this is borrowing language from, uh, from kingdoms and monarchs, where the, 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 the closest advisor to the king, uh, Game of Thrones fans, you know, it's the hand of the king, right? You, you, you're at the right hand of the father. You're the one who executes all the king's commands. You're the one who has been invested with, with all of the power. You represent the king. Right? It's the position of the highest authority that is given to you. And so that's where Jesus is sitting. He's sitting in a position of ultimate authority. And, you know, this, this is, you shouldn't think sitting down is a kind of a, just, just kind of resting. Uh, in monarchies, you know, kings sit down. It's all the people who have to stand, right? I mean, this is a little bit weird. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, the church for most of its history, or a good part of its history, the preacher sat down and the congregation stood. Teachers sat down and students stood to listen. Right? That's why when Jesus goes to give the, the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down and began to teach. Because that, that was the norm. Because, right, I mean, I'm doing all the work here, so I should get to sit, Right? <laughs> So when he's sitting, it's a sign of authority and power. It's not just like he's being lazy or, you know, he's done. He is done. His work is finished. But he now rules with absolute power. Um, You know, it occurs to me that this is an aspect of Christ that we, that I, have not emphasized enough over the years. Uh, our, Our focus is so much about the cross and the resurrection and the, and the forgiveness of sins, as rightly it should be. Um, but somehow we don't think about what happens after the resurrection as much, right? That it's not just about us living out our discipleship on earth, but it's also about Christ who has ascended and has sat down and is ruling the world with absolute and full authority. That Christ is a ruler of the world, that he is king. And, and we need to kind of remember that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> You know, when you walk into this space, to any typical uh, Presbyterian sanctuary, you notice that it's very plain, right? I mean, there's, it's just basically plain white walls. The only sort of, you know, decoration that we have, um, a cross typically, you'll see a cross. 
maybe a communion table if you want to think of that as decoration. And so for us, the emphasis is on hearing the word. And so we want to remove any kind of distraction from hearing the word as best we can. That's why we don't have, you know, scented candles or, you know, pictures and icons, things like that. We want to minimize distractions so that you're focused on on hearing God's word. Now, again, I think that's good. Um, But in that, sometimes we forget something. Uh, Most of you probably have not spent much time in Eastern or uh, Greek Orthodox churches, but if you walk into their sanctuaries, typically you will be greeted, like your senses will probably just get blown away. Typically, in the front, or uh, often up in the, the dome of the church, you'll see a, just a, a huge icon or a picture of Jesus, uh, something known as the uh, G- Christ, the ruler of all, the Pantocrator. Uh, it's, it's a picture of Jesus. Can I get the first picture up? <clears throat> <clears throat> something like this, you'll see in those churches. This is, this is Christ. You know, he looks a little stern, typically, because he's, he's judge and ruler now. And you see that he wears a, a blue robe as a sign of power, of royalty. And the inner garment is typically red as a sign of his blood that was shed for us. His left hand typically holds a Bible. And his right hand uh, makes various signs. But it's always three fingers and two fingers. Three fingers to signify the Trinity and two fingers together to signify his full humanity and his full divinity united in one. So that's one way of showing that. There are other hand formations, but it's always three and two. So that's, that's what people see. So when you, when you walk in, next picture, please. So this is, a, this is what you'll see. Like you're, you're confronted by Christ, the king over all. It's not just the cross. It's not just the forgiveness. You're reminded that Christ is the ruler of all. The ruler of all. And that's what you're confronted with. Next picture. Right? See, you see, you see the heavens. So, so this is what you see and what you are reminded of. And it occurs to me that, that we ought to at least remember this. That Christ has died. Our sins are forgiven, yes. Praise God for that. He has been resurrected and raised from the dead and we have no fear of death. Praise the Lord for that. But he has also ascended into heaven and is sitting down at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father, ruling with authority and with power. He is the ruler of all. Third, even though the work of the cross is done and Jesus is sitting down, he is also interceding for us. You know, because maybe the ideal of Christ as the ruler of all is a little intimidating, makes you fearful about judgment and so on. But Jesus is not sitting next to the right hand of the Father in authority to accuse us, to condemn us. He is sitting next to the Father to intercede for us. The Apostle Paul uses courtroom language here and seems to suggest that Christ is defending us as an advocate before a judge. So, we might think that Jesus is somehow like, like pleading for mercy or for forgiveness for us or, or something like that. But, but I don't think that's the kind of interceding that Christ is doing at the right hand of the Father. Because there is no need for Christ to defend us before the Father. He already defended us once and for all on the cross. It's done. It's done. 
And, and it's not like God's going to forget about what Jesus did or that God needs to be reminded of this. I think rather than interceding for us for our salvation, I think the language here is trying to suggest to us that Jesus has the ear of the king and that we can have confidence that we have total access to royalty. We can bring every matter before the king. There is nothing too small, there is nothing too great that we cannot bring before the king. God is listening, and Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Whatever fears, whatever temptations you face, you can bring it to his intention with the full confidence that he hears and will aid you to overcome. Whatever sorrow or pain or trouble you may be going through, you can have confidence that he hears and that he can provide comfort. Think of it this way. You know, Isaiah 49, God says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Can a woman forget her nursing child? I mean, is that even conceivable? Those of you, all of you moms out there, can you imagine that as a possibility that you would forget about your child? You know, my wife and I, we dropped off our uh, last child in school. We are now officially empty nesters. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Um, And um, I can tell you, you know, they're, they're out of sight. They have ascended and they've, they're gone, right? But I can tell you that my wife is daily interceding on their behalf to me, right? She, she cannot not remember them. It, it's just, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So can a woman forget her child? No, I mean, like it's, okay, we know, of course, from the news that there are some cases where there are people who just, um, are so broken where they will abandon their child. Or, or, of course, we, we know that. But as a rule, you know, th- this is a kind of an impossibility, right? It, it's, it's almost impossible for us to imagine that a mother just forgetting her child. But God says, okay, that impossibility, even if that could happen, I will not forget you. I will not forget you. I mean, that, that's an incredible promise. It's an incredible promise. And then comes even something better. Verse 16. God says, I will not forget you in verse 15. And then he says this. God says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now again, this is, this, it's all metaphor here, right? But every time God looks at his hands, he sees you. Maybe it's your name, maybe it's your face, I I don't know. But it's there. It's inscribed, carved, chiseled, permanently tattooed, more than permanently tattooed, in the hands of God. Right? Those are enormous hands to have everybody there. But that's what God sees. He, He has this inscribed in the palms of his hands. 
And so I'm imagining, you know, Jesus is sitting there and he's talking with the Father and he's telling God about our prayers and he's saying, hey, listen, you know, um, Larry needs uh, this prayer answered. He's interceding on our behalf. And he's, he's talking and he's sitting there. He sees the hand of God with you engraved in the palms of his hands. And he sees that he sees his own hands and the nail marks are in his hands. He's not going to forget you. No matter what happens, no matter what is going on in the world, no matter how far you may feel you are from God and the love of God, God is not going to forget you. You are inscribed permanently in the palms of his hands. That's why Paul says, you know, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You know, a number of scholars consider the eighth chapter of Romans the greatest and most important chapter in the entire Bible because it kind of uh, summarizes, you know, the, the work of Christ. Paul spends the first seven chapters of Romans describing the work of Christ uh, for our salvation. And then in the eighth chapter, after having laid out this grand plan of redemption of God, He concludes in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation. Because of what God has done in Christ, there is no condemnation. And then he comes to the end of the chapter and he concludes with this this, uh, rhetorical force. He asks a series of questions that John Stott has identified as the undeniable affirmations, what James Boyce calls the five unanswerable questions. He says, if God is for us, and we know he is because of what he has done, then who can be against us? Answer, no one. If God did not spare his son, his most precious son, won't God give us everything else? Yes, of course he will. Who will bring a charge against us? No one. Who shall condemn us? The only one who could condemn us died for us, has been raised for us, and sits on the right hand of the Father interceding for us. There is no one to condemn us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall death, life, principalities, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. God is the justifying God, the justifying judge, and Christ is our advocate eternally interceding for us. There is therefore no condemnation. There is therefore nothing to fear Everyone who can accuse you will not and is on your side. No one and nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can condemn you. All of God's actions have been for you and for your salvation. His past actions ought to give us confidence for his future promises. Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection... His ascension, his session and intercession assures us that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sit with the Father and make intercession for us. We're thankful that you rule the world, though it doesn't seem like it always.
God, help us to trust your word, to believe the good news. That not only have you died for us, but that you have been resurrected and that you have ascended next to the Father with authority and with glory and that you make intercession for us. Give us the confidence to come before you, to trust you, to have the joy and the freedom of knowing that we are loved, that nothing shall separate us. And so help us draw close to you each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.